You're listening to the UBC Medicine Learning Network. So let's get started with this session. I'll name each panelist, and they will introduce themselves and tell you something about why this topic is especially meaningful to them. And I'll start with Dr. Wilma Aruda. Hello, everyone, and welcome. My name is Dr. Wilma Aruda. I'm a pediatrician. I live and work in Nanaimo, British Columbia. Um, as a pediatrician, I have offered clinics within schools uh, for the last several years, providing pediatric consultation. And when COVID uh, led to school closure, I felt that uh, I wasn't able to provide the consultations to the students and the families as I had before. So I'm really happy that school has uh, reopened and I'm starting to reconnect with some of the schools and with the uh, families. And um, I'm really looking forward to seeing how that's all going to go in the next few weeks. Dr. Haley Broker. I'm Haley Broker. I, um, I'm going to read mine a little bit because I only have two minutes. So uh, as a full-service GP uh, for more than 30 years at Lionsgate Hospital on the North Shore. And for the past three years, I've been focused on substance use disorders, mental health, opioid agonist therapy that's prescribing Suboxone, Methadone, and Tedian, as well as transgender and primary care at Foundry North Shore, at Stepping Stones and covering at Health Connections Clinic on the North Shore. Um, I have teenage godchildren, and uh, that's among many youth patients and children patients, as we see 12 to 24 at Foundry. And my godchildren have had, you know, a real issue with the COVID in that one can't attend university in Ontario like they would have wanted to and played football. As you can imagine, I think a lot of you are going through this as well. He's got a lot of anxiety about learning by Zoom. That's not one of his best best ways to learn. So he's actually interested in taking a course at CAP on how to learn by Zoom, which I think is pretty interesting. Um, also, they are very fearful of attending school or university, even with the most recent uh, news with Surrey schools and Delta schools having positives in COVID and what does that mean for them. Uh, also have a nephew who's on the spectrum and what does that mean for him attending school. Um, luckily he really wants to go to school and his parents are supportive. So I'm glad that he gets to go to elementary school but there are a lot of issues with unwanted touching or, you know, being, quote, inappropriate in a classroom and perhaps leaving and what would that mean if he does it without his mask. So there's a, a lot of different fears that we do think about and this topic is very close to my heart. Thank you. Dr. Rosalind Catchpole. Hi, I'm Dr. Catchpole. I'm a registered psychologist and head of the Mood and Anxiety Disorders Clinic at BC Children's Hospital. Um, so I really live and breathe in the world of anxiety treatment, which has maybe never been more important than this year, nor has my personal and professional life overlapped so much as that in the last six months. Um, so, you know, a couple of the things I really enjoy, I'm quite passionate about parent-led treatment approaches, so I was heavily involved in the development of the Confident Parents Spreading Kids Anxiety Program. And I also spent the last year doing a lot of work on school refusal, which was 
a big roller coaster year since for a while the school refusers won because schools shut down and now of course things are back um, and it's a little bit more of a challenge uh, and then this topic is near to my heart personally as well I live in Vancouver and I have two kids one in elementary school and one in high school uh, and I'm also contending with some immune suppression of my own and so I really had to go through that decision making process myself around what to do with my own kids ultimately sort of watching how we didn't really thrive at the end of last year I did make the decision to send them back and be a little bit more cautious myself at home and I'm happy to say they have never looked happier than they have in the last few days since school's been back so yes that's a really really important topic that I, I care a whole bunch about as we all do um, on every level so thank you for having me thank you Mr. Jeremy Church Good evening, folks. I'm happy to be the lone non-doctor on the presentation tonight. So uh, I am a principal of a high school in North Vancouver called Mountainside Secondary School. I'm also a district principal of social-emotional learning and mental health. So I'm, I'm here because I am trying to invite kids back into school and working with my team of administrators and teachers around creating safe spaces that are physically safe and emotionally safe because uh, we believe that that's really good for kids. And so trying to create those spaces for them uh, I'm a dad, so my my attention to this is not just professional, but I've got two kids in high school and one kid in elementary school, and yeah, very much uh, looking at their own struggles. I've got smart kids that still struggled with that online piece, and a lot of that was struggling around emotionally, socially, missing their friends, uh, and and really the, the gray world of online learning is tough for a kid who's 12 or 13 or 7. So. Uh, happy to be here tonight and look forward to learning from the panel and sharing what I can. So, thank you. You know, by the end of this, we'll probably give you an honorary doctor. I'll take uh, doc Dr. Mark Lecision. Hi there. I'm uh, Mark Lecision, Deputy Chief Medical Health Officer uh, for Vancouver Coastal Health. I'm also a medical health officer and a school health officer for the North and West Vancouver School District and also the Vancouver School District. Um, and I guess my anecdote is just, you know, we took a lot of aggressive measures to control the first wave of the outbreak, and we did a really good job here in BC of that. But, um, you know, there are a lot of other public health issues, and there are a lot of other benefits that kids derive from school. And, um, you know, during this next wave that we're in now, we really have to make sure that kids get those benefits while still controlling uh, the COVID outbreak. And we, we believe we can do that. And so really happy to be on the panel here to t today to talk about um, yeah, the way we can do that. Thank you. Dr. Ashley Miller. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Ashley Miller. I'm a child and adolescent psychiatrist at BC Children's Hospital. And I'm currently uh, the interim senior medical director for our outpatient services. And I'm really uh, happy to be here this evening. As a manager, I really ha had to deal with the getting staff working safely virtually from home and then helping them come back on site. And I have a lot of uh, empathy for the position that uh, teachers find themselves in as a clinician working uh, sometimes in the emergency room at Children's Hospital. We're already seeing kids coming because they've melted down at home or been aggressive. Uh, kids with neurodevelopmental disorders around going back to school and then just hearing calls from physicians about their patients who are refusing to go to school with anxiety. That happens every year and we knew that would probably come now. So really eager to support families as best we can. And as a mom of, of two kids, 
I'm very cautious. Uh, and at first, when there's a, a shutdown, I was I was really pleased. But as I saw the impact on my own kids, I had to start doing this risk benefit analysis, which I think all parents are sort of doing almost on a, a continual basis now. Um, so I, I, I've seen them really happy to be back. Thank you, Dr. Linda Uida. Good evening, everyone. Um, I'm a family doctor. I kind of wear three hats. Um, I work at several Fraser Health Youth Clinics. Um, I also work at the Forensic Psychiatric Hospital, which has been designated a long-term care facility. Um, and so we've had some experience um, with outbreaks, not only COVID, but um, uh, also, also things like influenza and um, uh, norovirus. And I've just, I've really witnessed how the public health measures can really help us control those outbreaks when they happen. We also had an instance where we had a staff member test positive for COVID, and I, I saw how all of the things that were there to protect us really did do a good job. We didn't have any extended spread um, beyond that one staff member. Um, and then finally, as a mom, um, I we actually live with um, my my father who has some some health conditions. And so it wasn't an easy decision. It wasn't just a straightforward decision for me to send my two teenagers back to school. Um, it did take some thought. And so I do have empathy for people who are struggling with the decision as well. So thank you for having me. So now over to Dr. Catchpole and Mr. Church for a few slides. And I promise it's going to be a brief presentation. We'll get to everyone's questions, but just a couple of slides. Okay, this is this is my slide. So it's Jeremy again, the principal from North Vancouver. Uh, I chose this one. It was on an image that our. Um, oh, go back to that one there, just quick. There, just a, a, an image to show what I hope that our kids are feeling, which is a general amount of excitement about coming back. Uh, and I feel that certainly from March until June last year, that the, the feelings of nervousness and and fear and all the rest of it sort of put that enthusiasm on hold. And my my hope is that our kids are if not showing this outside, at least feeling it on inside and behind their masks as they enter our buildings. Uh, when reflecting on what I thought would be useful for folks to hear today as you might be working with parents who are feeling uh, nervous or trying to make decisions, was really just to unpack what some of the key uh, items are as we look at the back to school restart plan. So I'll get, I'll get you to move to the next slide there. Really just wanted to make sure people were clear about the staging and, and we're in stage two, you all know that, I recognize that. But, uh, as a school system, we are really working hard to not just focus on the here and the now, but also really focus on what happens if we need to move between stages. And so uh, wanted to make sure that we're not only focusing on um, in-class full-time, but every teacher in every school right now is being asked and tasked with thinking about what happens if we need to move to stage three or beyond. And so we are feeling equipped to, to address that if it comes up. Go ahead to the next one there. Uh, you've probably seen this slide again, and I, I think what I really wanted to focus on was this idea of learning groups. And I know that for me, that was the one, as an administrator who heard the, the change in language from the Ministry of Education mid-summer, was the one that was hardest for me to get my head around. I didn't understand how it was going to work. I didn't understand how that was going to make any difference. And to be honest, from a secondary school perspective and elementary school, it's been the most complicated piece to work uh, within our schools is this idea of learning groups. Uh, but just to show you there that in stage two, it, each stage has its own size of learning cohort size or learning group size. Um, and so I think that that document really helps unpack as we move forward 
uh, what is it going to look like if we need to move to stage three? And how do we explain that to parents? How, what, what language am I using to explain that? Um, and the next slide here really just helps unpack a little bit around the learning groups. And, and I think it's been great for me to have my parents come back in because this is the one thing that I know has helped them land on feeling safe. Like this is the one piece that I think really helps them understand why the learning groups and why it's taken so long to get schools back up and running is that they are a key component and that there is a group of kids and staff who are staying together. They're not a bubble. They're not joining hands like family members, but they're in a group called a learning group or cohort with the intention of reducing the number of interactions and improving contact tracing. But really, I think, is, is about building a better sense of connection amongst the staff and the students in a way that's safe. So it's, in my school, I can speak for my school, I'm, I'm trying to angle that the learning group is the safest place in the building for you because you can be in a space where it's only kids that you know and only kids who um, are you're familiar with and a staff that you're familiar with. And in that space, you don't need to wear your mask. And in that space, we don't need to be focusing on two meters of physical distancing and we can focus on just minimizing physical contact. So I, I realize now, you know, it's taken me a month and a bit, but how important that concept of learning groups is, not only for safety in school, but for contact tracing and all the rest of it. So really wanted to land it, so I think it is an important piece for, for you and your role to, to also understand. And if you need more understanding, please feel free to dig deep or ask questions. So I'll turn it over to Rosin at this point. Thank you. Roz, you're muted. So sorry. Oh, sorry. Um, the most families have made a decision at this point, but I wanted to just share a few slides about um, families who are maybe struggling a little bit with that decision, as well as a couple points around kids who are really refusing to go to school. And so, and this framework really comes from experience talking with so many families this summer and just having this common theme of paralysis. And what we know is that parents' fears really translate onto kids and teens very easily. And so as you're having these conversations, if there's families who haven't made decisions yet, we really want to outline for parents that the first step in conjunction with the family physician and, and getting other relevant information is really to make an informed decision about whether to send the child back to in-person school. And the second step for parents who are on the anxious side is really to practice living that decision. So we don't want parents waffling back and forth between those decisions and then communicating anxiety to their child. And so communicating confidence to children and teens about the steps that have been taken for safety is really critical. So that's the parent piece that needs to come first. And then for children who are anxious, if they haven't gone back yet, we really want to advise practicing those routines in advance. And for children and teens who are really experiencing refusal, what we want to do is break it down. And I'll talk about that in a sec. And the last message we want to give parents always when it comes to anxiety is not to give up if the child pushes back. We expect a lot of pushback when there's anxiety um, and then it tends to solve. Another way to think about this, and I thank Dr. Miller for, for this slide, is we can help parents to broaden their view. So a really common experience I've been having this summer is families who are understandably concerned about the physical health risk factors. So we think about that sort of the left side of this graph, you know, piled in family risk factors in the context of community transmission rates and school safety measures. But often 
I think families are missing the right side of this, which is looking at the academic and social emotional health of the family. And I think helping parents to have that conversation about what are their needs and capacity over the long term, not in the two-month shutdown, um, to provide an alternate approach to schooling if that's what they want to do. And then looking at the child's social and emotional needs, and particularly kids with anxiety, need a lot of practice out in the world. Um, so I'm seeing a lot of kids now who are anxious to begin with who aren't doing that well having been at home for months and months. And finally, what are the learning needs? Um, so do they need you know, specialized support from a, from a teacher? And then last slide here, if you're finding families in a practice where there's a refusal, just a couple key points, and I won't belabor this, I know we're excited to get the public health questions. Um, my first clinical pearl would be really go through that decision framework with parents and check for parental ambivalence. Because sometimes if we're targeting our message about how to get the kid back, but we're missing that step where parents are frightened and they need some validation, they to listen and they need someone to help them through it, we're targeting our message at the wrong level. On a practical note, if it's the parent's okay and it's the child isn't going, make sure home is really boring. No Wi-Fi, no Netflix, nothing like that. It's got to be more fun to be at school. And parents have to set those expectations in coordination with the school for typically a stepwise return with a little bit more time each day. Working with the parents and the school comes first. There's certainly a role for child therapy in the treatment of school refusal, but when we look at the literature, it's really that parent and school piece that's most important. Um, if kids are not being expected to go back, talk to a counselor, coping tools, things like that, they tend not to land because the child's just really trying not to go. Um, and finally, while SSRIs certainly are effective at lowering anxiety, the research on school refusal is quite mixed in terms of SSRIs, and the reason is because the SSRI isn't curative. It can make the steps for going back to school easier, but it really does need to be that really concrete behavioral um, kind of strategies to, to make this work. And I'll stop and uh, send it back to Dr. Chet. Already, so the the most uploaded question so far is: Will the BC healthcare system be moving towards a saliva and/or rapid COVID test to help accommodate the inevitable influx of requests for COVID tests from daycares and schools? Doctor decision, you're up. Unless Doctor Cashpool, you want to take that one. Sorry, my um. What happened to you? Oh no, yeah, the, the bills office, have not been paid. The office lights just went off, so I'll have to go turn them back on. Um, but yeah, we know the nasopharyngeal test uh, is not, I guess we would say, very acceptable, uh, you know, for children. It's uh, you know painful and uncomfortable, and particularly when you've had the test once, you might not want to have it again. And you know, with the frequency that kids get respiratory symptoms, uh, there may be a need to repeat testing in a lot of kids. And so we, we know that other sample types are really needed. And so we are working on several different sample types and there's pilots going on right now with both the saliva sample and also the saline gargle sample. Both, both of them basically uh, involve kind of um, taking samples from the mouth rather than the nose. And so we do expect that those will be available to kids and well, kids um, in the coming weeks to months. I, I can't really give an exact date on that because it really 
does require some implementation. Uh, it, they'll first be available at the testing sites, and in future phases, they may be even available for take-home use from schools. But uh, you know, there's a lot of sort of uh, implementation that has to happen before we can do that. Great. Do you want to turn the lights back on? I could go do with some other questions. Yeah, <laughs> let me go find a primary care or mental health or pediatrics question. Oh, here's a question. So there was inadequate access to mental health resources for youth prior to COVID. Has there been an increase in demand and this person says in their experience, they think that, that there has. And if so, what are plans to increase access to useful mental health resources? Jail, whoever wants to take that one. I'm happy to start with that. Um, we've always had, there has been an increase in foundries across British Columbia. And uh, I'll speak for foundry at this point, which is 12 to 25 years old. Uh, but uh, they have opened in different cities, including Surrey, Campbell River, a lot of cities across British Columbia. They also have a website, which we'll be showing at the end, with a phone number that anyone from British Columbia can call in order to uh, get access to counseling, clinicians, or some kind of help uh, with mental health. So that has really been expanded over what it was before. This was a plan to be done anyways, and I think COVID just expanded it or pushed it forward. MCFD does counseling for everybody zero to 18, uh, minus people with concurrent disorders or using substance use as well. And they have counseling in pretty well every community in British Columbia, um, and are trying to keep their wait list down. we uh, family services as well, I'm not sure if that's everywhere, I know it's on the North Shore, um, has provided at least five to six free sessions for people with any COVID-related issues. And that's just a few of the resources uh, that have been made more available. Also, a lot of family doctors and clinicians or counselors are finding they have a little bit more time uh, using telephone or Zoom as a uh, or video conferencing rather than in person, although in person is available at a lot of places again. So there's just an example of uh, increased mental health. Uh, we have always seen anxiety, um, depression, uh, substance use, and mood disorders. So it's really hard to say whether those have increased or stayed the same. Uh, we are looking at those stats. CAMH, actually, the, the Center for Addiction and Mental Health in Toronto, keeps a dashboard nationally of, of sort of mental health sort of consequences of COVID. It's, it's really interesting to see the uptick in sort of alcohol use, substance use in general, anxiety disorders, if you want to take a look. So, oh, Mr. Church, please. I just want to come in and say that that's, I mean, the benefit of schools is schools are the universal. So unit schools are addressing everybody for the most part. And I know within the context of the reopening plan, They've given an incredible amount of focus on how are you addressing the social emotional learning and mental health needs of those coming back. So we, we have trained counselors in the context of our schools. I know that our business is perceived to be education, but I know that, that within those schools, the leveraging of relationships and connections is a really powerful tool. And I know that, that part of that BC back to school plan is that focus on 
connecting and then checking in universally around mental health, talking about mental health universally and teaching everybody rather than waiting for the individual ones to bob up is actually addressing it from the university. So certainly has been a focus as part of the reopening. Super, thank you. So with 33 votes, recommendations from schools are sometimes inconsistent with those from BCCDC. For example, my school, my child's school recommends kids stay home if anyone is sick at home, even if ch the child is asymptomatic. Which recommendations should we be instructing parents to follow? Uh, this is probably a question for me. Um, you know, there has been a little bit of confusion recently because um, the guidelines around when kids should be home from school have been changing and a new set of guidelines was posted uh, by the BCCDC this week and um, basically all the health authorities will be following those guidelines. There, you know, there, there are some things that haven't changed though. Um, you know, people who have been identified as COVID cases, they can't be at school. Uh, people who have symptoms of COVID, uh, you know, that could be COVID that are new, they can't be at school. Uh, people who are close contacts, like household members uh, of a family where there is a case of COVID and they've been directed by public health to isolate, they can't be at school. So, and then people who have traveled internationally in the past 14 days. So if the child has traveled themselves or the staff member has traveled themselves, they can't be at school. So th those are those are situations that um, have always been part of the guidelines and they, they haven't changed. What has changed a little bit in this most recent guideline is a little bit of a more, I guess, realistic approach to what happens when children get symptoms of respiratory and GI illnesses, which we know are common in kids. And, and so, you know, we, we wanted to make this realistic. This year is going to have to be different, I think, for parents and families and for, for, for doctors as well. You know, I think there, there is going to have to be more reliance on testing than we, we ever typically have. You know, usually when kids have these symptoms, they, they don't really get tested. They don't really get assessed very often uh, by physicians. So, you know, th this, this season is going to feel different. But at the same time, we don't want to paralyze the school system and the, wor the, the work system where the parents have to leave work to, to help with the testing. Um, you know, by having kids tested all the time. And so the, the most recent guidelines say that basically if kids have new onset sy symptoms, they should come home. And the exception to that is if the symptoms are part of a, you know, a regular illness for the child and they are not different and they are not worsening, then the child actually doesn't need to go home. The other, the other thing it says is that, you know, we should focus on certain symptoms of concern and that's fever, chills, cough, shortness of breath, and then loss of sense or taste, uh, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. So th those are sort of the most symptoms we should pay attention to. And if the child has any of those symptoms, they should go home. And then they can wait a little bit too. So, and you see what happens over that those 24 hours. Um, and then if those symptoms persist or get worse or new symptoms come or fever is one of those symptoms, that's when, you know, it would trigger the need to go either see a doctor or get a COVID test. And, uh, um, you know, so if the symptoms had been more mild, like, oh, there was a little bit of a headache one day and, and maybe a bit of runny nose, but then the next day they're better, they can actually go back to school and they don't require a COVID test because really those symptoms are not characteristic of COVID. Um, so, you know, it, it's, it's taking a, a long time for me to explain these guidelines, so it, it will be a little bit difficult for the first few times. And, you know, families may have to do this in concert with their, you know, their physicians, their primary care providers, um, because 
because it is new and, and you know, there will be anxiety around this and maybe the assessment of the school will be different than the assessment of the parents that will be, you know, different than the assessment of the physician. But, you know, and then some of those cases will probably have to err on the side of doing testing um, just to kind of reassure everybody in, in the school community. And then, and then finally, I guess, related to this question of when can a, you know, when can a kid be in school or, or when do they need to be tested and then when can they come back is the next thing. So if uh, somebody has a COVID case and public health will direct them when they can come back. Likewise, if they're a close contact, we'll also direct them about when they can come back. Um, and if they've had these mild symptoms that, you know, don't worsen over 24 hours, they can come back. If they have a test and they test negative, then they can come back when they feel well enough to come back. The symptoms don't have to have resolved following a negative test. Uh, basically, if they test negative and they're feeling well enough to be in school, they can come back. Um, and then finally, if there's an assessment done and a test is recommended, but the child or family doesn't want to have a test, then in that case, the child should remain out of school for 10 days as if they did have COVID uh, because we would have no way of knowing otherwise. So that's a long description of that. And, uh, you know, but that is in the most recent guidelines that have just come out from BCCC. So some of the you know, guidelines that the schools had posted earlier, which came up from the Ministry of Education, wouldn't have this detail in it. Um, they came out with a kind of um, more straightforward to describe um, algorithm. But unfortunately, we we in public health really believe that that would result in a lot of kids uh, being out of school, a lot of parents getting their kids tested. And, and we've tried to, to, to reduce that because, you know, we know that a lot of kids are going to get sick and we know very few of them will actually have COVID. So we can just take your answer there and record it, and that's the webinar. Right. Mr. Church, um, you wanted to comment about actually the expectations for staff. Yeah, I mean, just hearing hearing uh, Dr. Lucision talk about that, it's the same expectations for staff. Like if staff are symptomatic, they are not to come to school as well. So the system itself is feeling pretty sensitive right now because all it would take is a teacher to become symptomatic of something and, and the dominoes start tipping. So I think there is a, a certain amount of, especially at the beginning here, sensitivity to keeping the system as healthy and well as possible. And, and it is going to bob up and there will be inconsistencies, I'm sure, because people are doing their best to interpret those guidelines. And I'm doing my best to interpret them, but there will always be interpretations, I suppose, out there. So yeah, just wanted to add that. So actually, so next question is, you know, if a child tests positive from a child's COVID, so this speaks to sort of public health's rationale for choosing which people to isolate. Who needs to self-isolate and for how long? Yeah, so in, in general, the people that need to isolate will be directed by public health to isolate. Uh, so nobody should have to wonder if they have to isolate or not. Um, because, you know, isolation is a real, it's really difficult, you know, for a, a child. They have to miss school. They have, can't see their friends. Uh, you know, and for a parent because they have to take care of the child or they have to miss work and things like that. So, you know, we, we don't take those decisions lightly and people shouldn't worry about having to decide on that for, for themselves. Public health will always reach out uh, to people that need to isolate. Um, but in general, that will be cases and it will be in general household contacts or intimate contacts of the cases. Um, now, sometimes people are aware of the cases and, you know, it, it does take us some time in public health to figure out who the contacts are and to contact those next people and, and things like that. But, um, but basically, public health will direct people if there are cases or if there are close contacts of cases um, to isolate. Now, was there another part about that question about and then what happens with the rest of the school? Was that part of that question too? 
good assumption. Yeah, I mean, because I think that's what everybody's worried about. So w- when there is a COVID case in a school, what's going to happen? And so this is this is part of the process that's happening a- across the region right now. Whenever there are COVID cases in in workplaces or public settings, and uh, you know we have already had cases uh, associated with schools. So public health always does an assessment to try to figure out where the case was during their infectious period. And so we'll determine if they have been at school during their infectious period. Then we're going to determine what were they doing during that time, because sometimes they might have only been in school for an hour. Sometimes they only will have been in one class. Sometimes they only will have gotten as far as the, the you know, the, uh, the office, and then they will have been sent home. So, you know, we need to determine actually who they were in contact with. And we do that with the case. If they're not old enough, they, we, we do it with their family and or the school. Um, we always try to isolate you know, the minimum number of people that we can. And so if we can get named contacts who this person was in, in, in close contact with, we'll isolate those people, we'll contact them and isolate them. If we can't do that, we'll isolate the class. If the child has been in multiple classes with their learning group, we might have to isolate the learning group. And, you know, as we get involved with younger kids, there's a much greater chance that they will have been in contact with, you know, many members of their class or potentially many members of their learning group. And so that that's, you know, when we might have to resort uh, to isolating the learning group. Um, but it would be, you know, it, it would be rare that we would have to isolate, like for instance, the whole school right at the beginning. Usually that first maneuver of identifying the close contacts and isolating them uh, is usually enough to prevent transmission. And so we do this routinely in the school setting with other communicable diseases like measles and pertussis. Um, and so, you know, we actually have a good relationship with schools and school districts and we do this routinely. Now, one of the things that's a little bit um, uh, different, I guess, this year is that everybody wants to know about it and uh, everybody wants to be notified. And there's a real tricky thing about that is that, you know, often there's only one case. And if we do a lot of notification around that, it violates their confidentiality. And through our process of contact tracing, we are able to reach the people that need to know and isolate them without violating the confidentiality of the case. And so that's the process that we, we, we do. Now, sometimes there are times when we can't identify the contacts. And so we need to do a broader communication. Like we need to send a letter to a class and say, this entire class has to be isolated. And so it, it, that, in that case, we have to do that. We can't reach the people directly or to a whole learning group. So there, there will be times when we have to kind of go broader um, but in general, we try to take that direct approach so that we can, you know, discuss the whole situation with each contact and also so that we can better respect the privacy of the, the cases and, and then the contacts. So that, that's the sort of process we use. And, um, and you know, we'll always be, in, in, if there has been expo- exposures in the school, we'll always be uh, in touch with the school administration uh, to make sure they're aware. But we won't necessarily inform everybody in the school if everybody in the school is not at risk. Um, and so that's a, that's a process that we follow now in workplaces and public settings. And uh, it's a process that we followed in schools for years with every other communicable disease. Hey, you know, just so people know, there's after this webinar, we're gonna send around some resources. And indeed, these are already starting to pop up on the BC CDC website. They're gonna pop up on the Doctors of BC website as well. And they'll have flow charts that actually outline, you know, this is what you do if someone comes in with symptoms, or this is what you do if someone asks you for a note, or this is where, you know, you need to defer to public health and public health will go coordinate with the school to, to communicate with people. So we're really trying to make this really straightforward for folks. I'm gonna collapse two questions into one, and it's really about the mild illness. 
So someone asked about what do we do if a child has a runny nose? Someone else asked, can we, um, you know, you know uh, look uh, about the ministries of health and education looking to adjust their policy about return to school after a mild illness and whether you need to have had a negative COVID test and be completely symptom-free in order to return to class. Does it have to be 10 days? Does it have to be 14 days? Could you comment on that? Yeah, so really mild illness like runny nose is not in one of the key symptoms to watch for. So, you know, and it kind of depends also because a runny nose could be part of a child's regular allergy symptoms. And so then if so, then then that could be explained. But it, it, it is really going to require some assessment. If it's unusual for a kid to get runny nose and if there's runny nose and one of those other fevers like or one of those other symptoms like fever, well, then that's a situation that, you know, they do need to come home. They do need to get tested because fever is one of the symptoms that should always trigger a test. So, um, you know, it, it really it really depends. But if there's just runny nose, I think it can be watched for a little bit according to these new guidelines. Um, but, you know, if other symptoms come on top of that, then you start getting to the, the point where you have to be tested. And um, and then, you know, if it is if it is mild symptoms and somebody is tested, well, then they can go back to school if they test negative, you know, because mild symptoms wouldn't be enough to keep them away from school. So that's a, that is a new part of the guideline. But you know, if they've got a few symptoms and then they're waiting, um, you know, then they, you know, so, so each situation is going to have to be worked through. But, you know, with only only very mild symptoms and none of those key symptoms to look out for, then they don't really require a test. But if they do develop any of those, then they do require a test. If they get a test and they test negative, they can come back to school, you know, once they feel well enough. So that's a, a little change in the guideline. But Yeah, that's a key point, though, that, that when they feel well enough. So it's not that they have completely zero symptoms. It's just that they're well enough to actually physically attend school and learn. Yeah, absolutely. So, okay. So testing capacity. Someone asked about, will there be availability of public health nurses to do COVID testing in schools? It's currently hard to access testing centers for children under 12 in the lower mainland. Yeah, um, I don't foresee that happening. Our public health nurses are all involved in contact tracing right now. It's almost the only activity that public health is doing right now. And all of our staff are really working at that. So we don't have a lot of capacity to send nurses to school to do this. They, they wouldn't be well used in the school because it's going to actually be very uncommon that there's a case of illness that needs to be tested in any given school. Um, but we are trying to build up the testing capacity of the testing system. You know, we, we now have the drive-through testing centers, and originally they would only test children over 12. Now they can test children over four. Um, and then, you know, places like the UPCCs, the emergency room, BC Children's Hospital, they can test children of all ages. So, you know, we, we have actually massively increased the testing capacity out there, and uh, we'll continue to do that, um, you know, because as we need more and more testing, you know, we're in a different phase than we were in during the first wave. During the first wave, we actually restricted testing uh, and focused that on the people who were most vulnerable, like people being admitted to hospital, people in long-term care, healthcare workers. Um, that was part of our strategy, but everything was closed down. So we were able to use a strategy like that because people were at home anyway. People aren't at home now. So, you know, we, we do need to continue to allow testing and uh, we need to make sure there's capacity in the system to do that. And we have been adding testing sites as the demand increases and, and also adding, you know, specifically, you know, this fall adding uh, capacity to test children. And then I, I also yeah. think that once once those other sample types are available too, that will actually in, 
may increase the throughput of testing for children uh, depending on the sample type because it might actually be easier to obtain the samples from, from kids. Yeah, I mean, and just as an insight into sort of the, 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 the demands on public health, my contacts in the health authority tell me that staff are actually being drawn from other services into public health, seconded to public health to, to assist, but that's actually putting some pressure on other, other areas of the healthcare system. So, you know, everyone's just working there, you know, flat out. I'll ask you a couple more questions, Mark, and then I'll give you a bit of a break and we'll ask some of the other panelists. But parents, so people are asking about parents. What happens if a parent is sick? You know, let's say the parent, uh, you know, without a COVID test is sick, or let's say a parent who is COVID positive gets sick. Insights into what, what we do when parents are affected. Yeah, so it's the same thing. Public health will direct what needs to happen with that parent and also with the kids. So, um, you know, if a parent is sick and they don't know what they're sick with, they don't need to hold their kids back from school. Um, I mean, if the kids are symptomatic, then they have to be held back from school. But if the kids are well, they go to school and then the parent has to go get tested. And then if the parent's result turns back positive, they'll be contacted by public health, directed to isolate. And if they've had close contact with their children, which most parents would have, their children will be isolated. So again, parents don't have to do that on their own. We will direct them to do that. Um, and uh, if there is a COVID case in the family, then then the kids will stay home. And and um, you know people get very anxious about this, but but you know there there is time to do that. If the kids are not symptomatic, the parent hasn't passed it on to the kids yet, and so uh, there's time to isolate them. You know without creating additional exposures. But obviously, if people are symptomatic, uh, regardless of whether anyone's been tested from COVID, if the kids are, they shouldn't go to school. And if the parent has been diagnosed with COVID, then the kids will be directed to to stay home from school. Medical notes. Can you please provide guidance on note requests from schools in order to stay home or return to school? My understanding is that the BCCDC has stated notes are not required unless the child is immunocompromised and needs to stay home from school. Yet we are already getting requests. And I can imagine there's all sorts of ancillary questions about that. You know, what's the nature of the medical documentation? Do you need to document if the child is returning home after a bout of mild illness? You know, if after a test. Can you comment? Yeah, I mean, basically, we don't want to break our healthcare system with anxiety and notes, right? Like that—that's not what the healthcare system is here to do. Um, you know, we believe that most parents have their child's best interest in mind, and um, you know, we'll do the right thing according to the guidelines. And you know, we we we. We don't require notes to prove that there has been assessments, notes to prove that there has been tests, and, and we hope the schools will accept that. Um, you know, in some cases, we, we may arise into situations where, where people don't believe the right thing has happened. And, you know, as school health officers, we're, we're happy to be consulted on those situations and, and to help, you know, liaise between the family and the doctor and things like that if necessary. But we think that in most cases, um, you know, the schools, the families, the children can follow the guidelines and um, you know, just report back what has happened without needing to uh, require doctor's notes. Um, we just don't think that's a good use of the healthcare system or, or a necessary use of the healthcare system. I mean, I'm sure the family doctors have an opinion about it too. <laughs> Dr. Broker. Yes, uh, that is one thing I really prefer not to do is a note. Uh, what happens is, is we'll get someone, even over a phone, where we can't see them, we have not seen their child or their youth um, demanding a note. And it doesn't make any sense because what you're doing is you're asking me to write a note that says what you want it to say. 
um, and it actually doesn't make any logical sense. So um, the only notes that I like to give is uh, in the case where we have to fill out a form for someone who is immunocompromised, and they have made lists, like someone with stable diabetes is not immunocompromised. Uh, so there are lists of people who are considered, especially anybody taking chemotherapy um, who, or who might have a very low white cell count because of the medication they're on. Um, some of these people do need forms filled out to say that they are immunocompromised, but it is completely different than um, just asking for a note to say, my child is better from their runny nose and can return to school. Please don't do that. We are being overwhelmed with other things. So um, we don't have time to do notes for these things and appreciate if you don't go to your family doctor for that. Yeah, and my understanding is that the PHO, the BCCDC and doctors of BC are aligned on this point that, you know, we're really trying to minimize the use of notes and we really do not feel that they're required except for the more severe cases like, you know, someone's in active chemotherapy treatment, in which case their, their specialist team might write a note. But in, but in the ordinary course of work that might happen anyway. And I've seen that when I work at children's hospital with children that have to be locked because of chemotherapy. Um, but not for like, you know, asthma, not for diabetes, not for you know environmental allergies. Um, so to give Mark a break, I will ask a non-public health question. So I'll, I'll skip to this one. I have a few teenage patients who are feeling ostracized by their peer groups because they are taking the COVID recommendations seriously. Is there any online resource you're aware of that we could recommend? Perhaps some online chat groups of like-minded teams to share their experience. We'd like to take that. I can start. Unfortunately, I don't have a specific uh, online resource. I'm curious to hear if anyone else on the panel does, but I'm a big fan of parents role-playing social interactions with their kids. Uh, even older teens will sometimes do this with you, but definitely the younger uh, teens and tweens and, and kids will. So how you, pr you practice having that conversation, what can you say to your friends, and also encourage them to try to find a like-minded kid in their group. There's almost always one kid, and you just need one kid to be happy at school, one friend who, who you get along with. I also wanted to mention, um, just from the question before, about resources that the Compass line is available and uh, still running full steam for anyone who needs consultation about child and youth mental health. Any of the other panelists want to comment about that, the situation yeah. you have with the teens? I was thinking that, I mean, that's one of the benefits of being back in school is that there will be lots of kids who are like-minded. I think it when groups of kids only spend time with their typical groups of friends, it, it, that pressure point will come. And my daughter's experienced that where she was hanging out with kids in the summer. She was the only one that was trying to kind of keep the bubble intact. And, and she had to walk six feet apart from the group of kids who were all bubbled up and they were all hugging and just sort of like air high-fiving her and that. So I think with school being back in, it actually gives kids more access to other social avenues of, of like-minded kids, to your point, uh, uh, Dr. Miller, about um, finding those kids and I think staff within schools also modeling sort of appropriate ways to, to not be anxious about it and, and not have a mask on in a learning group but still find ways to be to normalize it and provide some kind of adult facilitated interactions that still model and follow guidelines that are fun and I think the kids left to their own devices throughout the summer here and in May and June uh, were left to navigate those things so I'm, I'm happy that kids can be back in school to 
to have some adult facilitated support to that to that end as well. Actually, Mr. Churchill, we've got there's a question actually about um, catching kids up. You know, after a prolonged period of being away, some people, some kids have actually not been back since March. Do you have any comments on efforts of the school system undertaking to sort of catch people up? Yeah, I mean, it, my conversations within our district, we've talked a lot about the, the reality that kids are not coming into September with the same set of skills that they normally would be coming into September with, uh, and a recognition that that a number of our kids would have experienced some form of trauma or stressors during the summer and are coming in probably more amped than normal. So um, our teachers are ideally going to be cutting kids some slack, certainly here in the start, and really focusing on getting them landed and feeling safe in school. Um, obviously, some of those learning gaps become a little more prevalent as kids age, like as, you know, the content areas from grades 9 into 10 or 10 into 11 can become a bit more stark, but as a system, everybody has experienced the same thing. There's not, you know, unless you're some student who was already doing online learning and you started it in November and just kept it going, for the most part, you had an interruption to your learning. And I know that, that almost every teacher in the province is going to bear that in mind as they head into September here. Um, I think in the younger grades, it is more about the learning process, and so I pick on butterflies all the time. And but just you know, there's there are things that there's content that kids are asked to learn, and as they age through high school, the content pieces sometimes can get a little heavier. But certainly in the younger grades, it's a it's a process oriented learning, and so uh, you know, for me, I would not be worried about as much of the content pieces for May and June. Uh, trusting that the system is going to be doing some of that backfill piece, but also recognizing that that the, the learning that kids will take place and, and, and take part in is it goes beyond just the classroom walls. And, and there were lots of learning that took place in, in May and June. So I, I hear it. I certainly know that if this were to go on for longer uh, and students are not able to access, certainly the, that kind of the, the learning gap can, can begin to get quite large. But I would say for now, uh, the system understands that there is that, that differential between where they would typically be in September and now. So. so extracurricular activities, are there any guidelines, including outside of school activities such as ballet, basketball, etc., that are, you know, for example, some of these are currently advertising that they are doing? Um, and I can answer that. You mean outside of the school setting? Um, yeah, I mean, there's a process underway with an organization called Via Sport, which is the kind of provincial sport agency and they've developed a certain set of guidelines and and each of the different sports has its own sport specific organization that's also trying to come up with what are the guidelines um, for that activity and in many cases those guidelines are being reviewed by the BCCDC and then kind of being implemented in different ways in each um, local program and so there, there will be a certain amount of after-school activities that are available and, and parents will have to decide what activity is right for their kid at the right time because some of the activities will involve more physical proximity to other children and maybe physical contact. Um, you know, with each of the activities, there should be some thought to how it's happening and, uh, and some measures in place to try to reduce the risk of COVID in those settings. But, um, you know, with different activities, there's different risks. And, but also the different activities have different importance to other kids too. So, you know, these are all things that are going to have to be sort of weighed um, by the family. And, and uh, you know, then there's also going to be, well, how many of these activities do we engage in this year? I'm sure a lot of families are going to reduce the amount of activities that they do. And, you know, much like the schools, you might want to focus on one activity with a certain cohort of, of, of kids because that helps re reduce your overall risk. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, there, there will be a certain amount of activities available, but probably not the same menu as before. And most of the activities will look different and families will probably access them differently. Yeah, I, I looked at Via Sport myself last night and there's like 35 different guidelines for different sports ranging from like alpine skiing to kayaking to, you know, my daughter's in, in soccer and it does look very different. You know. Yeah, um, we've, also, your... we've also worked with arts organizations and Scotiabank Dance Center, Harborview Dance, you know, all, all, all kinds of different types. You know, every employer in BC has to have a COVID safety plan if they want to run their business. And so, you know, so anything that is operating now should have a plan in place and you know, not all the plans are perfect, but hopefully we're finding the ones that are the best and, and, and getting them correct. And actually, uh, there are some questions later on, Mark, about even just some of the things that you've said so far. People are pointing out that when they've searched on the web, even on the BCCDC website, it doesn't seem to be consistent. And so people are wondering, is that because the guidance is actually being continually updated? Or there's going to be a new guidance online soon. My understanding that these September 11th guidance documents should be on the BCCC website now, um, so I'm, I'm not sure, but uh, I don't know. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. th this is the problem with the pandemic is that there is a lot of guidance that comes out at a lot of different times, and um, you know, organizations like VCH, BCCDC try to continually have the right things up there, but um, it, it's a real challenge. Yeah, it's my understanding too that yeah, the September 11th, I, I actually just saw it. So I know it's I know it's there. And that's the most up-to-date. And that's the one that will circulate actually after this webinar is the most up-to-date one that was vetted with multiple folks to share the most up-to-date. Um, people, people, should, people should expect that it will change because this, this is the thing with guidance, right? Like we developed this guidance before they even go back into school and then we learn things. So yeah, it will change. Yeah. So yeah, check check frequently. Um, what is your prediction and what is the modeling saying about the likelihood or non-likelihood that schools will be closed again and will be back home learning by October, November, or December? Well, um, yeah, I, I don't think it's high. Uh, you know, our goal in managing the COVID outbreak is, you know, really to protect the overall health of the population. And for most people, COVID is a very mild illness. Um, you know, particularly for young people, for kids, you know, 90% of kids have a very, very mild illness. Uh, for adults, 80% of people have a mild illness. So, you know, we're not really trying to prevent lots of mild illness. That's not the goal. The goal is to prevent the serious illness that results in hospitalization, ICU admission, and death. The people that really die from this are people in their 80s uh, who live in long-term care facilities. And so a lot of the, the, the work has been done to kind of make sure those uh, systems are secure. So that's really our goal in managing the outbreak is to prevent that that real harm to the population where people are dying, people are uh, being admitted to the hospital. The other thing we have to preserve is the overall capacity of the healthcare system because if our hospitals fill up with people requiring ventilators and we're not able to perform surgery and not able to uh, you know manage other people in hospital, well then also we're going to be at real risk as a population. And so, you know, that's what the measures in the first wave were really meant to do. We had to preserve that hospital capacity to, you know, in case we needed to, to manage people on ventilators and things like that. So, you know, in this kind of second wave that we're experiencing now, mostly the cases are younger and we're not seeing the same levels of hospitalizations or deaths that we were seeing in the first wave. And so as long as we can maintain that, I don't see us going back in terms of any of the phases of the, the restart plan 
that we've envisioned. Um, you know, if at some point we are seeing the types of deaths and hospitalizations that we saw previously, then, then we would have to consider stepping back in various ways, but we'd have to decide, you know, what are the most important things to step back. So to try to prevent that, we are also sort of tweaking what we're doing now, you know, so recently we put a an order around nightclubs and around how late you can drink and and uh, standalone banquet halls. And previous to that, there was an order about vacation rentals and things like that, because we were seeing transmission in those areas and, and we were worried that that type of transmission would get out of control and then it would spill over into the older age groups and then we'd see the people in the hospital. And so we're trying our best to prevent that to happen. We want society to keep operating and that includes keeping schools going because it's hard for people to work if the schools aren't going. And we also think that schools are a low-risk environment. Um, you know, we're not going to see a lot of deaths or hospitalizations, or maybe even any deaths or hospitalizations as a result of schools. So, um, you know, I, I think schools would be a, a really late thing that we would try to shut down. Um, but, you know, we, we can't really predict the future, so we have to see how this outbreak unfolds. But our, our goal is really to you know, minimize the impact on the overall population and then also preserve the capacity of the healthcare system. And so far, even though now we're having many more cases than we had during the first wave, we're managing to do that. You know, and actually that helps answer one of the, one of the, the question with 11 votes, which is about the further actions that public health would take to keep the community transmission low to protect kids and teachers. And that you spoke about the nightclubs, the, the reduced drinking hours. Really that controlling the community transmission is just as more important than anything we do in the school. Yeah, I mean, we, we have to take measures to, to, to keep the community transmission controllable. And, you know, so yeah, these environments that we were just finding too problematic, then, then we have to try to shut them down and, um, you know, find the right way for them to work. But, um, but in general, the essential services, you know, like healthcare, school, <laughs> work, things like this, like we need to keep them going. Otherwise our society, you know, suffers too much harm. Maybe, maybe I'll engage my pediatric and, and children's hospital colleagues for a second because there's a number of questions about, you know, the morbidity and mortality, for lack of a better term, surrounding COVID with children. How, you know, how many kids get severely impacted by COVID? How many end up in the ICU? What are the long-term impacts? I'm just collapsing a couple of questions into one. Long-term impacts. So folks that, that work at the children's hospital or, or, or pediatric homes, could you comment on that? Well, I don't work at the Children's Hospital, but I'm a pediatrician, so perhaps I'll start with that. Uh, I think it's uh, the research, of course, is, um, is is evolving, and we've talked about that already, that this is a sort of constantly changing um, process. But uh, we do have some information, of course, that's being collected um, internationally and also within our own province. And we know that the number of children that are actually impacted by COVID is much less than um, you would expect in terms of their uh, you know, the number of kids in the population. So they're actually impacted less. And there's also good information to show that they don't transmit um, the virus in the same way. So um, they're really quite protected, especially the younger children less than 10 years of age um, are are really not experiencing the same level of concern that we would be experiencing in, in adults. And I think that's a reassuring feature when we're thinking about having kids together um, at school. Um, in terms of long-term complications, well, if children are experiencing milder symptoms and, and are um, not really getting severely ill, then we don't really expect that they're going to have long-term complications uh, in the same way. And uh, we haven't seen that, of course, yet. Um, we do know that there is 
an evolving concern around uh, the multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children. Um, and that, again, is being really closely looked at and studied. Um, I know that our own provincial health officer, as uh, Bonnie Henry, has put out a request for physicians to report hospitalizations of children that have this diagnosis uh, so we can carefully track and understand this um, concern. It's also being followed very closely with the Canadian Pediatric Surveillance Pro uh, Program through the uh, Canadian Pediatric Society, which um, is again also very closely monitoring this and following um, any diagnoses uh, related to the multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children so that we can actually gather more information and have knowledge about uh, what that means. I guess I should say that that is still considered a very rare condition. So it's not something that's coming up um, um, in, in such a way that sh that's, um, should be significantly worrying. We are seeing this as being quite rare. And um, and so in, the, in, in that sense, it shouldn't uh, be something that we should be expecting our children to be having difficulties with, um, but that we wanted to monitor, definitely want to monitor that in terms of um, where that will evolve to. Uh, perhaps others have some further comments about uh, long-term concerns. I mean, I, I could just report on that multi system inflammatory disorder, you know, there, there are several infections that cause syndromes like that. And so we have had a number of, um, of these syndromic presentations, you know, reported to public health uh, since the beginning of the pandemic. And I, I think maybe it's about 10. Um, none of those cases have had COVID uh, either by, you know, the NAT testing or by serology testing. So we don't believe that any of the cases are related to COVID. Um, thus far, but yeah, we'll continue to watch that. And, and that's an interesting uh, idea, not specifically related to the multi-system inflammatory um, syndrome, but um, with the Canadian Pediatric Surveillance Program, uh, they were reporting um, a number of cases of children in hospital with, that had um, had a COVID test and were positive, but a good number of them, I think 50% uh, almost, were picked up incidentally. You know, the child had gone to the hospital for some other reason, a surgery or uh, some other condition, and um, they did the test as sort of a routine test. So they didn't sort of present with symptoms of COVID. They presented with, for another cause, and they were found to have COVID. So um, it was just very interesting information that's coming out around the, the milder sort of experiences that children are having. Hold that thought. We might ask you about that later because there's an 11 vote question about that. Transmission primarily occurs through close contact indoors. Why then are we not socially distancing children in classrooms and making masks mandatory for all grades? I'm just quoting the question directly. Instead, there is undue emphasis on cleaning surfaces and hands when we know that fomite transmission is rare. Yeah, so um, measures like physical distancing and also mask use, uh, these are really strategies that are recommended in uncontrolled public locations where you may find yourself unexpectedly in close proximity to a stranger who might cough or sneeze in your face. You know, that, that's what they're designed to do. Um, they become much less important when you're in a controlled environment that first of all has other uh, measures in place like, uh, you know, school sick policies and things like that. And then you're in the same environment with the same people for long periods of time, it becomes actually irrelevant whether they cough and sneeze in your face because you're all touching the same surfaces all of the time. And so, you know, the measures 
um, work in certain environments and they don't work in others. And, you know, this is why we also don't recommend that people maintain strict physical distancing in office environments or use, um, you know, non-medical masks in office environments with people they work with regularly because it's not um, a measure that's very effective in that setting relative to the other risks. And so that's why in the school setting, um, you know, we've, we've tried to control the amount of contacts through things like the cohorts. Um, you know, we're, we're not saying everybody touch everybody all the time, you know, and as kids get older, they can try to be physically distanced. They can try to do things like wear masks. Um, but, you know, the harm that would come to kids if you tried to impose some of these things uh, in these environments would actually be quite a lot, you know, for a measure that actually wouldn't be very effective in that environment. So that's, that's sort of the rationale, and it applies both to physical distancing and also to mask use because they're, they're, they're really not designed for environments where you spend a lot of time with the same people on a regular basis. Any advice for how to counsel teachers with COVID anxiety or fears but who are not at increased risk? So, for example, they're not in the conference. They do not have a medical complexity. There's been lots of requests for accommodations and I think we've, we've talked a, a little bit about the, these, you know, kids are less likely to get COVID. They're less likely to be involved in COVID transmission. And when we look at the COVID transmission dynamics that we have in BC and, and also some of the published literature, kids are actually much more likely to get COVID from adults than the other way around. You know, so we actually you know, think of kids as these germ factories that are just like, you know, getting all these infections and giving them to everybody. And maybe for some infections, that's true, but for COVID, it simply isn't true. Uh, so, you know, based on that, I would say that schools are actually one of the safest working environments uh, that we have um, right now because of the way that kids are not really involved in the transmission in the way that we normally think about kids and, um, you know, cough and flu-like illnesses. What are the guidelines for in-person versus online schooling for children who are uh, immunosuppressed or not immunosuppressed? Matt, you, you cut out for a bit there, but I'm also wondering if, if Dr. Catchpole and I maybe could respond to the question about um, counseling teachers as well. Before sure. we respond, I'll just move it over to Dr. Catchpole to start. Yeah, I guess just in terms of the anxiety piece for teachers, because I think part of it is maybe reassurance around the medical piece, and then the other piece is what do we know about anxiety treatment in general, and so just some good basic advice for teachers would be things around, you know, watching their news intake, um, making sure they're getting that information from reliable sources, making pacts with their coworkers around being positive supports rather than what we all probably do with our friends sometimes of going down a bit of rabbit hole of anxiety um, and really focusing on the things that they can control. Um, so, you know, maintaining their distance as much as possible or, you know, those kinds of things um, versus, versus that anxious state. And uh, anyway, and, and certainly, anxiety treatment can be helpful. We know that when we stay in situations that cause us anxiety, it tends to get better over time rather than worse. Um, so, so giving that uh, advice to teachers, I think, could be important. And Dr. Miller, you probably have more to add. Yeah, I just, when we're doing counseling, and I know um, as physicians, we're doing so much um, frontline counseling that it, to remember that it's not logical. When people are afraid, 
they're coming to you from their fear center. And so the first step is really to listen uh, compassionately and to validate their concern. If we jump in right away with the facts of why it's not dangerous, the natural instinct is often to get more anxious because then you feel like, oh my goodness, this person doesn't understand me. But to say, I don't blame you for being anxious, uh, there's a lot to worry about right now. And I, I get why, given your circumstances, you'd be concerned. And so that initial validation actually helps lower the anxiety state so that it can take in the logic that you're giving them. And so that's true whether it's teachers, parents, anxious teens, and even to use the word anxiety, I mean, there is a, a threat. And so although we may know realistically it's a low threat, we need to temporarily sort of um, go on side to appreciate that threat so that we can help calm them. And we, we have that, I think, power as, as physicians, educators, um, professionals to, to come alongside with people. So I just add that in whoever's in front of you if they're feeling anxious. Thank you, both of you. There's three people in my house streaming Netflix simultaneously, so that's probably why I'm cutting it off. Um, since kids are largely asymptomatic, how can we know if this virus is spreading in the school? Um, yeah, there, there's a lot of discussion of asymptomatic transmission, and um, we, we don't believe that actually plays a significant role in overall transmission. Um, the part we do think contributes is the people who are pre-symptomatic. So during that period before you develop symptoms, we do believe you can transmit the virus, and that's why when we're doing contact tracing, we don't just uh, look where people were, where they had symptoms. We look actually where they were from two days prior to symptoms until they went into isolation. And so we do sort of account for that pre-symptomatic period in our um, contact tracing. But we really don't believe that people that are all, you know, were asymptomatic for their entire illness really contribute to transmission. If they did, we would actually not be able to control this. We would have never controlled the first wave. It just would not be a disease that we can control if, you know, there's just all those people out there that are that are spreading it without ever developing symptoms. So, you know, most people with COVID develop, uh, most people who are involved in COVID transmission do develop symptoms, but sometimes they are infectious a couple of days before they develop symptoms. And this, this is, you know, part of the challenge with COVID and it's why we do end up with a lot of exposures in workplaces and we will end up with exposures in schools. Um, because people will have been there before they develop symptoms. I mean, how could they not? But the good news with contact tracing is that then we isolate their contacts, and so then their contacts hopefully will develop symptoms when they are in isolation, and that's how we stop um, the, the overall transmission in those environments. Um, yeah, so, so I mean, people without symptoms do contribute, but it's not the people who never have symptoms. It's the people who just haven't developed symptoms yet, and we will account for them in our contact tracing. And I've heard the same about airborne transmission. If this truly was an airborne disease like measles, I mean, it would just be everywhere. It would be just out of control. It's not. What are the guidelines for, and we're going to start rapid firing here. Um, we're not going to do the thumbs up, thumbs down thing, because I think most of these questions still require a little bit of nuance, but we'll try to keep the answers very, very short. We'll round through a bunch and we'll come up with some clinical pearls from each person and we'll, we'll call, it a, call it an evening. What are the guidelines for in-person versus online schooling for children on immunosuppressants, immunomodulators, and biologics. I guess the, the question is like, how do you make that determination of whether someone should be doing in-person or online? I believe there's actually a, a guideline now for that and it's being updated as well. 
I mean, I can make some comments. You know, with the COVID safety plans that are in place, we think that schools are safe for most kids. Um, but of course, kids all have different vulnerabilities and then their families all have different risk tolerances. So, you know, there is going to have to be some consideration for every child uh, and every family. So we do understand that. We hope that, you know, physicians can can help and other professionals can help families through that decision. But, you know, COVID is less dangerous for kids than influenza is. It's also probably less common in kids. Well, it is less common in kids than influenza. So if a child was able to be in the school environment um, during influenza season, they are likely okay to be in, in the school system during the COVID season or during, you know, the COVID pandemic. So, you know, although we have a lot of attention on COVID right now, it's actually not as severe an illness in children as influenza and some of the other illnesses that we routinely have in the school system. So I think that's kind of a, a thing that people can think about too um, when they're thinking about these. You know, that might be your clinical pearl right there, to be honest. You know, that would probably head off a lot of the questions people are asking about notes, medical documentation, is it safe? You know, if your child was able to go to school during influenza any other year, you're saying it's safe to do so now. When will serology testing be widely available either through the public system or through a private lab for a fee? Well, it is available to some degree through the public system now, but not for general use because of the problem of interpretation of the results. Uh, we don't know what the results mean in terms of immunity. And so the reason why most people are interested in serology results is to determine who is immune. And we have no definition of immunity yet. There's not enough evidence for us to know, first of all, you know, whether it's the antibodies mean that you're immune or mean that you're immune for how long. So that's the reason it's really not available. Now we have the capability to do the test and we can occasionally use it in public health investigations to, to link um, situations together. But it's just not available for the purpose that people really want it for, which is to tell them whether they're immune. Right now, we don't consider anybody to be immune from COVID, um, although hopefully, you know, evidence will be coming out soon that could help us do that, because it's obviously helpful if some people are immune. The temperature guns. So my, my, my kids have had to go through this to get into certain stores in the mall. They point the temperature gun at your child's head. Are there any effects on the brain? Is it accurate to take temperature on the wrist? Is it more accurate to take the temperature on the wrist? And are we normalizing pointing a gun-shaped object at the head to our children? Quoting directly from the question. If there are some unexpected parts of that question that I will pass on maybe to the psychologist or psychiatrist. But, um, you know, we, we don't recommend temperature screening. We think a better way to identify COVID in the school setting or in any setting actually is to do symptom screening. Um, you know, not everybody with COVID has a fever, so you'll miss some people if you use symptom screen, and then some people with temperatures don't have COVID, and so we don't think that works very well. We think people with COVID who are involved in transmission um, have symptoms, and so that we think is the best way to do it. So we don't recommend temperature screening. Um, I don't believe there are any effects on the brain, and then I'll leave others to comment on the psychological effects, which I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I'd not be one of my top concerns in the whole scheme of this pandemic. Although, I don't know, maybe if we lived in the States, I'd have a different answer. And I'm going to be very rude, and I just want to make one clarifying point from my earlier comments, because I noticed it in the in the questions, which is, I made the comment about making home boring and turning Wi-Fi off and things like that. I was talking about during school hours. So I'm not talking about we fully isolate kids who won't go to school. And of course, we have to do an assessment to make sure there's nothing horrible going on at school. I've tried to make brief general comments about that. So I just want to make that clarifying point so you don't 
keep thinking that I am a very mean human being. Dr. Catchpole is actually a wonderful human being and a very, very accomplished person. What about families who are not following public health guidelines and sending their kids to school? So they're not respecting social distancing in their personal lives. Their kids are in close contact with others. Should all parents need to declare that they will adhere to a bubble of six? Um, you know, I mean, uh, the provincial health officers kind of words through all of this, you know, are be calm, be kind, you know, stay safe. And that's really the way that she's approached that. And that's kind of how I think the public health system has tried to approach most things in this response. You know, we do have a lot of powers on the Public Health Act. We can close things. We can lock people up. We can do all these things. But this is a disease that's, you know, pervasive in human society right now. We can't eliminate it. And, and we have not, you know, taken those aggressive approaches in, in most ways. And we have not relied on sort of enforcement approaches. You know, we, we believe that most people are complying with the recommendations. Most people are doing the right thing. You know, the right thing for me is not the same right thing for everybody else. And so there will be variations in, in how people decide to apply the recommendations because that's what they are, recommendations. Um, so, you know, if, if, if there are conflicts that arise and there's, you know, concern that people aren't following rules, again, as school health officers, we're happy to be involved in those situations. But, but we believe in general people are doing the right thing and that most people are doing, you know, the right thing for them and their family and there is going to be some variation. So one more. So exemptions from mask wearing oh, for adults. I think, uh, oh, sorry. I think Linda oh, had it. Oh. Yeah, I just wanted to talk Dr. Yuida. Um, just when I have patients who are concerned about that or even family or friends who are concerned about that, I really try to redirect them back to, you know, what is within their own locus of control and to focus on what they can do to keep themselves and their families safe. And so those are back to the public health guidelines, distancing, hand washing, you know, mask wearing in order to make yourself feel safe and then just refocus on yourself, what you can do and be kind to everybody else. So one last one, because we have to, uh, we'll get to some pearls. Exemptions from mask wearing for adults and high school children. When and who can we write a note as a patient request? Do we have to take this liability as a family physician? Again, I don't think notes should be required for exemptions. Uh, in most cases when, you know, when, mask wearing is made mandatory and exemptions are proposed. We've given the feedback that most of the organizations that are requesting an exemption don't have the right to withhold, to hold medical information about the people. So uh, in most cases, we don't think, you know, people should just be allowed to say, I can't wear a mask and no more questions should be, should be answered. So I, I don't think, you know, notes should be needed for that. And I don't think anybody should be requiring the reason. Um, Again, we respect people and their decisions about the measures they are able and willing to take. So I'll call it on the questions. I want to point out to folks, though, that because uh, I'm looking at some of the themes from the remaining questions, there are going to be there is going to be more guidance issued. And I have, my understanding is BCCDC is also going to release an evidence review of some of the rationale be behind closure of schools, and then sort of what we learned during the summer. Um, you know, in Quebec and Ontario, for example, as they, they open schools or daycares, and then sort of the evidence for why schools are going to have been reopened. And I think that will actually help answer a lot of the questions between the guidelines and the, and the evidence review. What I'm going to ask each person to do, each presenter to do now, is just a clinical pearl, something something that you want people to take home with them tonight. You know, one, one, one important fact, uh, and I'll start with Dr. Aruda. Well, I... 
when things closed down last March, um, we all had to relearn how to do everything, how to see patients in our offices, how to um, follow up with patients we were already seeing. Um, of course, kids didn't go to school. When kids started going back to school, some of my patients started going back even earlier as they were the children of essential service workers. And when I started seeing them again, I um, was delighted to learn that the kids did very well. They were enjoying school. Kids that didn't necessarily enjoy school previously um, were now enjoying school and um, were uh, able to uh, do the learning that was required and, and um, we're really being successful, I guess, is the best way to describe it. So I, I think we've talked a lot about um, the worries that we have about sending kids back to school, but the positive responses that I saw in my families and the children uh, that were able to go back to school even in, in the spring um, it was really, uh, it was really delightful to hear that and to see that and to um, and I guess we just have to continue to focus on that, that there is so much positive um, for kids going to school. So that's the problem. Thank you. Dr. Broker. I'd like to just answer a question I didn't get to fully answer previously, but there are virtual groups available to youth age 12 to 24 through the Foundry BC website. Um, so please do have a look at that website and click around because you'll be able to find a lot of resources for anybody the age of 12 to 24 and for their caregivers. It is for parents and caregivers as well. Thank you. Dr. Catchpole. I think I would say, you know, there's no good health without good mental health and this is such a hard time for parents and kids. Um, I would say ask, ask how parents are doing and ask how kids are doing when you're seeing people in your office um, because I think it's, it's just such a huge thing and, and just opening up that conversation a little bit I think can open up a lot of opportunities for support um, for parents and kids in this difficult time. And thank you all for the amazing work you do every day, but especially in a pandemic. Mr. Church. Uh, I would say that we want your kids back at school. Like we are happy to have them. We're excited. We might even be a little hyper-vigilant. Uh, we're getting used to the new rules. We're going to be implementing things that folks may not totally agree with, but it's coming from a place of real deep care and compassion and wanting to create safety. And schools are also really wanting to be flexible. So I think sometimes folks think there's only two choices, in school or not in school. Uh, but most school districts are really looking at how can we support that transition back. And so encouraging parents to explore what the other pathways are beyond the binary of yes or no, I think would be really helpful. And thanks for the time. Dr. Decision. Um, I know there's a lot of anxiety about um, everyone going back to school, but I, I will reassure everyone that we have had the experiences of daycares being open all summer. And, um, you know, it really hasn't been a, day, a disaster in daycare where lots of kids have symptoms and there's lots of potential for cases to be introduced both through kids and through their you know, the, the people that work there. And we've had to close very few daycares um, over the summer, you know. So we, we don't expect schools to be that different. And uh, like I said before, we have we have a great relationship with schools and we're really able to to, to do communicable disease management in schools. So we're, we're quite confident that the system is going to be able to support kids being at school. Dr. Miller. Uh, so I think for me, it's really about the importance of connection through all of this. And I'm really glad that 
schools are open again and that kids can reconnect to their friends and their teachers and their school counselors, but also the connection between us as uh, physicians or educators and the parents that uh, a lot of anxiety management is really in the relationship and just knowing that you're not alone. So we're all doing a lot, even when it doesn't feel like we are. Dr. Yurita. I'm going to echo what Ashley said and I uh, just want to um, talk about why we're doing this. We're going back to school to support children and their mental health and their education. Um, you know, when we're doing this, we want to make sure that us as physicians and the teachers that we're supporting and the parents that we're supporting, that we remember to take care of ourselves. So we know that children do well when they're undergoing large amounts of stress, when there are caring, connected relationships around them. So that's what I'm doing, talking to my friends, talking to the teachers that um, I'm in contact with, is just reminding them, you know, what are you doing for your own self-care? What are you doing to keep your own mental health in check? So that we can spread that contagion to our children. So we don't spread fear, um, that we just spread that we can take care of each other. I like that, how you've actually used the word contagion. So we've reached the end of our webinar today. I'd like to express my sincere gratitude to our panel. A huge thank you for taking time to present and answer the audience's questions today. I also want to acknowledge your hardworking UBC CPD staff. They're amazing for supporting this webinar and for everything that you do. Um, all of you that are attendees for attending and hope the session is of value. Please take a few moments to complete the attendance and evaluation forms that were emailed to you in order to obtain your study credits and also to provide your feedback on tonight's webinar. Finally, please be aware that in the follow-up email you'll receive containing tonight's webinar recording and the links to resources, there will be a link to our very robust and highly valued COVID-19 resource hub, as well as to a newer resource called REACT, which is available to answer any of your COVID questions. A link to our COVID-19 podcasts and other webinar recordings and summaries will be included. And finally, even though we didn't get to all the questions, I do know actually that People, we, we see these questions, we, we all kind of circulate in, in similar circles. And so, you know, we do push up these questions when we need to with, with the folks that need to hear them. So, so never fear, um, you know, the, the, the feedback and the questions do, do get looked at. So thank you again, everyone. Thank you for everything you're doing. Have a great evening. This has been a presentation of the UBC Medicine Learning Network. 